Hello and welcome to Unintended Consequences of Technologies, the podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ategeka. On this podcast, over time, we will explore the unintended consequences of technologies. Most people don't know this statistic. There is 29 states in America where driving a truck is the number one job. What happens to folks when the self-driving trucks hit the streets? This and many more unintended consequences such as fake news, cybersecurity, killer robots, artificial intelligence, isolation, automation, flying cars, and anything in between are the issues that we'll be exploring on this podcast. Any technology is a double-edged sword. If used correctly, it can make our lives easier, efficient, and faster. However, that same technology in the wrong hands can do a serious damage to humanity. There are plenty of conferences and forums to celebrate the amazingness of technologies and their positive contributions to our lives. Not until now has there been a platform to examine the unintended consequences of technologies. This podcast is one of these platforms, exploring unintended consequences of technologies by talking to individuals that are working hard to address these problems. Our guest today is Trevor Tim. Trevor is a co-founder and executive director of Freedom of Press Foundation. He's a journalist, activist, and lawyer who writes a weekly column for The Guardian on privacy, free speech, and national security. He received his JD from New York Law School. Please welcome Trevor. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Uh, so let's get right to it. So um, my first question to you, who is Trevor? <laughs> well, uh, I run an organization called Freedom of the Press Foundation, and we're a nonprofit based here in San Francisco. And it's our job to help journalists and whistleblowers communicate in the 21st century. And so what I mean by that is uh, there have, as you know, pretty much anybody who has read the news in the past five years probably realizes there has been an explosion of government surveillance capabilities around the world uh, where governments can root out uh, sources of journalists uh, within governments, within corporations, pretty much anywhere. Uh, the surveillance is used against journalists uh, to arrest them in many countries uh, and uh, even has led to their deaths. And so uh, at Freedom of the Press Foundation, we use technology to help journalists communicate more securely online, on their phones, uh, pretty much anywhere. Wow, that's uh, very interesting stuff. So I guess what you can dive more into now for our listeners, take us through the problem. What is the problem that Freedom uh, of the Press Foundation is trying to solve? Sure. So, you know, anytime a journalist wants to report on corruption or wrongdoing within a corporation or government, they need sources. Uh, they need to be able to talk to these people in confidence. They need to be able to gain their trust. And uh, the, the way they do that is by uh, promising to not reveal their identities uh, if they are asked. And, uh, you know, for decades, journalists um, in the U.S. Uh, actually went to jail for their sources. Uh, the government would try to force them to testify against them in court and uh, to you know, prove to both their current sources and future sources that they would keep their identity secret. Uh, they chose to go to jail instead. Uh, 
But what happened was that the government in the past 10 years realized that they don't need journalists to testify against their sources anymore. They can use the technology that everybody uses every day to communicate um, really uh, against the journalists and sources who are communicating. So, for example, uh, you know, our emails and phone calls. Um, there have been a record number of prosecutions of, of sources and whistleblowers in the United States over the past decade, and it's almost primarily because the government can go to a Google, an AT&T, or a Facebook and gather all sorts of data on who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, uh, for how long, and, and potentially where you're talking to them from. And with this information, they can paint a detailed picture uh, about uh, who uh, each journalist is talking to and, and potentially about what subjects. Uh, so it leads to really a chilling of investigative journalism, which is you know, manifested in more secrecy um, around what governments are doing and uh, really hurts the public's right to know. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in a way, there is uh, uh, unintended consequence of, of individuals using technologies and that information getting used against them and prosecuting them. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, your smartphone that, that virtually everybody carries around, it's, it's an incredible device that allows us to connect to virtually anybody that we want at any moment in time. Uh, but that same technology can be used against people. So our cell phone is connecting to cell phone towers pretty much uh, every instant that it, it is on. Uh, when it connects to those cell phone towers constantly, uh, it can give away uh, your exact location to the phone companies. And what the government in the U.S. thinks that it can do is it can go to those phone companies and say, you know, we would like the location data for your cell phone for the past three months. And so they can map that out and, and, and show exactly where you were uh, exactly where you went to work, exactly what you did after work, exactly where you slept, and paint an incredibly private and detailed picture of your life that even probably your closest friends and family um, don't fully know. Um, so this is already a large problem and a growing problem. And actually, this specific instance of, of cell phone location data will be up on the Supreme Court docket uh, next month. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing work. So you, um, you know, why, why is this important to you as a person? How did you get into this work? You know, my background is in law. Um, I uh, was always interested in constitutional rights, and in particular, uh, the First Amendment and the uh, right to free speech and freedom of the press, uh, and then also the Fourth Amendment, our, our right to privacy, and where those two amendments and rights intersect. Uh, and when, you know, I first got started doing this type of work when I was in law school, I, I uh, was a researcher for the general counsel for the New York Times in the 1970s. Uh, this was a person who brought two Supreme Court cases, one uh, about the rights of reporters to say no when they are forced to testify in, in front of uh, jur- grand juries and in trials, and then also the right of news organizations to publish information uh, that the government considers secret. One of the kind of 
bedrock principles um, of the the latter half of the 21st the 20th century um, when it comes to uh, what newspapers can and cannot do under U.S. law, and uh, you know the the combination of, of those two cases were were really inspiring to me, and you know now that we are in this this different era where it's not so much kind of the classic deep throat uh, meet in the parking lot of a mall or a basement, but instead we are using our computers and cell phones to communicate. You know there really needs needs to be new rules that are written um, for, you know, how journalists can uh, report on government wrongdoing that the government tries uh, to keep from the public. And um, so there is, you know, nothing in my mind that, that's more fascinating than that. What are the kind of common myths or misconceptions about your work uh, or, you know, cyber uh, activity in general? Uh, you know, I think when we're talking about privacy in particular, I think uh, a lot of people often say, uh, you know, something about, well, I, you know, I don't do anything illegal, so I don't have anything to hide. And, you know, if the government wants to collect my phone call records, um, then that's okay with me. And I think that that is uh, really a, a common misconception on a few fronts. Uh, you know, number one, you know, if anybody says this, uh, the... You know, I often ask, if that's the case, then would you mind if I, you know, had your email password and I published all of your emails on my blog? And of course, they would recoil in horror because anybody would, would feel incredibly uncomfortable with that. You know, privacy is not about uh, necessarily hiding wrongdoing or, or, or personal vices from anybody. It's about, uh, you know, feeling comfortable in who you're communicating with and, and you know, having controls on who has that information. And the idea that, that uh, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, uh, I think can gets broken down fairly quickly when, when people start thinking about it. And, and beyond that, you know, as a lawyer, you know, I've seen that there are so many laws on the books in the United States uh, that, you know, people are violating laws without their knowledge all the time. You know, there's a, a famous book called Three Felonies a Day that uh, makes the argument that people actually uh, break the law three times a day without knowing it. And uh, so if there was ever a situation where the U.S. government or any government around the world wanted to accuse you of a crime, they would be able to. And if they have an access to all of your communications records, that becomes a lot easier. And, and that's the world that we are trying to prevent. So for a common man or a common woman or an individual out there, what are kind of um, the best tips you can give someone to protect themselves as they go about their day or they go about using all these technologies that, you know, um, most of the time are collecting a lot of data about them and their lives? Yes, there's a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of easy things that anybody should do. Um, to protect their privacy. You know, number one, uh, always uh, put a passcode on your cell phone. You know, uh, if anybody has an iPhone, for example, uh, it is encrypted by default. Um, so uh, when you set up your iPhone, it asks you to set a six-digit PIN, and this will actually, um, Apple itself does not have access uh, to the PIN that you create. So you can protect the information that's stored on the hard drive of your phone just by doing that. 
you know, there are, uh, thankfully, we, in the past few years, there's been an explosion in uh, text messaging applications that provide end-to-end encryption. And so what that means is that even the provider of the text messaging service can't read the messages that you're sending. So the most popular one is uh, Signal. Um, which I would encourage everybody to download. Um, it is an encrypted messaging and phone call application. You yeah, know, it's, I have Signal myself. <laughs> uh, we were texting on Signal earlier today. Right. And, uh, you know, it works like any other text messaging application. It's very easy to use, um, but it's one of the most privacy-protective applications out there uh, that you can get. And as long as the, the other person on, on the other end of the phone with you is using Signal 2, then you'll be much more protected than if you used regular phone calls or text messages. Right, right. So, uh, Trevor, please let us know, let our audience know, how can anyone interested in your work and what you're about uh, be able to find you? Uh, well, I would definitely encourage anybody interested uh, to visit our website at uh, freedom.press, uh, and you can learn all about uh, the work that we do um, to protect journalists and whistleblowers and, and pretty much uh, anybody who communicates online. Uh, and you can also uh, follow me on Twitter at Trevor Tim. Trevor Tim. Thank you so much, Trevor. Appreciate you. Thank you.